Welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. We have spent the last few podcasts on Gnosticism. Let me put this into perspective. In the course of the Quest series, I hope to cover a considerable range of material from many disciplines. This journey is a search for vision from an interdisciplinary perspective, which I argue is essential to see more clearly the multidimensional crises that are evolving in the 21st centuries. I argue that the political, economic, military, ecological, technological, climatic, spiritual, identity and ideological crises are nested within one another, parts of an interrelated system. Hence, this is a systemic focus. We are at the start of a journey to clarify these components, see how they interrelate and seek our own vision. Gnosticism is just part of our exploration. This is a long but immensely worthwhile journey, fairly unique, I imagine, in its ambition and scope. For those of you who agree with this, perhaps you could recommend it to others, for whom such a vision quest is important or essential. For those who want to explore this more deeply, you may refer to the Quest Lecture and Meeting series. It takes place in London but it is available at distance on the internet. See my website, alamulhern.com, for more details, or contact me at thepilgrimquest.com. Secondly, some administration. At some point in the near future, I shall change the policy of the podcast and will provide the possibility for listeners to make donations. These podcasts, however, are not for profit, but I shortly hope to cover costs. Our task today is to assess Gnosticism. Young was accused by Martin Buber in the early 1950s of being heretical and a Gnostic. It would have been perfectly acceptable for him to reply, yes, that he was a Gnostic, and so what if he was? However, he replied that he wasn't. Young, as I have argued, was initiated through the Gnostic spirit, This is the meaning, I believe, of the Red Book, of the role in that book of Simon Magus, the arch-gnostic of the first century of the Common Era, alias Philemon, and the role of Basilides, the second century Christian Gnostic, the supposed author of the Seven Sermons of the Dead. Young learned to translate the Gnostic concepts into the language of analytical psychology. Sometimes the parallels are illuminating, Sometimes they are a bit of a stretch, but Jung needed to anchor his psychology deep in history. I believe he was also immersed in the mystery religions of Greece and the Near East, and this informed his initiation and vision. He next developed his ideas through alchemy after being reintroduced to the Secret of the Golden Flower in 1928. He then felt he had a bridge from the ancient world in Gnosticism through the Middle Ages in alchemy, through Oriental religions such as Taoism to analytical psychology in the 20th century. However, on the negative side of the ledger of Gnosticism, I imagine that Jung would have found their anti-cosmic, anti-nature, anti-world position as untenable as Plotinus did in the 3rd century of the Common Era. This may have been one of his reasons for denying he was a Gnostic. Plotinus the Neoplatonic mystic, had an interesting position. He maintained, like many, that there was an ultimate one, 
that is the source of this world. The first emanation is nous or logos, identified as the demiurge by Plato, from which proceeds the anima mundi or world soul, from which derive individual human souls. Matter is the lowest and least perfected level of the cosmos. Plotinus, unlike the Gnostics, asserted the divine nature of material creation, derived from the One, through the emanations of Nous and the world soul. We recognise the divine through the goodness and beauty of the world and its forms. Plotinus was equally vehement against the Gnostics because they denied the natural beauty of this world, this creation, this anima mundi. I think Jung would have largely agreed with this, and he certainly argued that evil comes into the world through humans, the shadow in the psyche, but it is not lodged in the world itself. The world and cosmos for Jung could be a difficult place to be contained in, but they were never evil. Also, the Gnostics could lean towards extreme asceticism, a denial of this world. I imagine many of you, like myself, would not agree with this. In addition, the Gnostics were radically dualistic, and this led to a splitting tendency. They split good and evil, darkness and light, into radical opposites. Thus, the ultimate and only source of goodness was the unknown God in the Pleroma, the Gnostic version of heaven. The creator of this world and the world itself were evil. Transferred to the inner world, this meant that mankind suffered this polarity intensely, as it were, immersed in evil and darkness, yet with a dim apprehension of the good. The Gnostics might be thought of as the Kleinians of the ancient world, since like Melanie Klein, the great psychoanalyst following Freud, they viewed the human psyche as fundamentally split from its inception. Unlike Kleinians, however, they were not content with reparation, but rather resurrection. The above three points, anti-world, extreme asceticism and radical splitting lie, in my view, on the negative side of the assessment. Had the Gnostics been in a greater position of power, they might well have had a more severe religious ideology than the Christianity that was moulded by Paul, the Church Fathers and Augustine. They could well have repressed sexuality even more than the Christians. They did have a strong confessional character also to their religion, implying a notion of sin, and despised nature and this world, and as we've seen, even the cosmos. Their radicalism can be quite shocking. In the modern reappraisal of Gnosticism, these points are sometimes neglected in favour of the positive ones, which were outstanding. But such is the nature of shifts in consciousness. The modern age has moved to profound doubt with respect to the patriarchy, Christianity, gender stereotypes, the ideologies of the past, and so on. Shifts in consciousness often move to contrary positions that are as polarised and one-sided as that which they oppose, such is the nature of political correctness in our own age. Thus, the Gnostics are often presented only from their positive side, while the negative can be neglected. So what do the Gnostics offer positively to the modern age? As we have seen, they anticipate the existentialists with their stress on the alienated human condition. 
Martin Heidegger was a radical existential thinker of the 20th century. His phrase of being thrown into the world describes the shock of the existential awareness that we simply find ourselves here in this consciousness with no explanation. For Heidegger, this leads to the call, that is, the call of conscience. The call to myself that, quote, is a silent call that silences the chatter of the world and brings me back to myself, unquote. This call consists of the faculty of intuitive thinking that awakens us. The Gnostics understood these feelings and ideas thousands of years ago. The term thrown into the world was theirs, as was their poetry and hymns that explained how it felt to live in an alien world. Also, the concept of the call was so much theirs. There were significant similarities between them and the existentialists, but the massive difference is that the existentialists have no God to refer to, while the Gnostics ultimately believed they had a light that came from a totally transcendent source and intended to return to it. The call is not simply one's own intuition for the Gnostics and a coming to an awareness of oneself, that is a call from one's own consciousness, but for them it is rather from a transcendent source in which the pneumaticus, the Gnostic spirit, is freed from its imprisonment and alienation. Jonas argues in the Gnostic religion that Nietzsche's phrase, God is dead, means that the supranatural world is without effective force. This statement applied to the Gnostic position, for they believed that they too were in a cosmos without a god on their side. This view is similar to that of Sartre, who argued that the transcendent is silent, and since there is no sign in the world, mankind is abandoned and left to itself. It has to reclaim freedom, or rather cannot help taking it, but this freedom for the existentialists is of a desperate kind, without compass, and inspires dread rather than exaltation. Again, the Gnostic position is similar, but only up to a point, since they maintain there is an ultimate source outside of the cosmos to which they refer. This source also has an origin in the scattered parts of light which are located in the human soul. As we observed, Gnosticism also has many remarkable parallels to analytical psychology that Jung developed. The general points we covered, to remind you, were that the Gnostics had a concept of the unconscious in general, and also the collective unconscious, that could be accessed by imaging and art, paralleled in Jungian psychology by active imagination. Certain Gnostics interpret their mythological material as symbolic rather than literal, exactly parallel to the operation of depth psychology in the modern era. The demiurge of this world is ignorant of a higher god, that is, Jung suggests, akin to the displacing of the ego's dominance with the recognition of the self. That the original man was caught in matter, a fundamental Gnostic myth. This is, in analytical psychology, a symbol of the transpersonal consciousness or centre deep in the unconscious, a symbol of wholeness. The Gnostics have dramatic images of light being entrapped in dark, the scintillae dispersed in matter and regathered in the process of salvation, which in analytical psychology is the dynamic process of healing in the psyche. The Valentinian Gnostics encouraged the adept as follows. 
endeavour to ascend into thyself, gathering in from the body all thy members, which have been dispersed and scattered into multiplicity, from that unity which once abounded in the greatness of its power. Bring together and unify the inborn ideas, and try to articulate those that are confused, and to draw into light those that are obscured. For the Gnostics, the soul moves round a centre from which it originates, paralleled in analytical psychology by psychic material moving around the magnetic self. For the Gnostics, the lost Sophia is immersed in matter and whom the Messiah redeems, and this is equivalent to the neglected feminine principle of modern times and in Jungian psychology. Hermaphroditic references in the Gnostic literature have a correlate in analytical psychology as a symbol of wholeness. The Gnostics, like analytical psychology, pointed to the revaluation of the male and female divide, an integration of contra-gender characteristics for the Jungians' animus and anima in the individuation process. Gnostics emphasised inner contemplative gnosis, knowing, rather than faith. Great importance is placed on revelation. The transpersonal path of analytical psychology is also very much one of gnosis and not simply the following of a set of rules or an act of faith. Gnostics maintain there is a pleuromic source to the light that is scattered and deep in the human race and has a transcendent source. This would be paralleled by a belief that the self, a primordial centre of meaning and order, carries the God image within us, also the image of wholeness and integration. The Gnostics often talk of dualism, dark and light, for example, sometimes a multiplicity of gods, yet a striving for oneness to the ultimate unknown god in the Pleroma, to which the light will return after the great gathering in. Analytical psychology and Jung's collected works are full of references to a dualism or multiplicity that is seeking unity, and this refers to the individuation process. The self of Jungian psychology is a correlate, therefore, of the transcendent source of the unknown god in Gnostic mythology, and it is the self or unknown god that makes the call. Christianity increasingly emphasised sin, while the Gnostics thought of ignorance, that is, lack of gnosis, as the default human position. Gnosis comes from revelatory experience. Jung very much favoured the Gnostic search for inner knowledge, and saw the dominance of the ego and rationalistic thought as the great delusion and cause of entrapment. A Gnostic intense feeling is that our existence is a prison. What unites young and the Gnostics is their determination to break through this, to pass through the archons, so to speak, with the special passwords, and reach the ultimate source of light to which our soul is in resonance. Gnostics anticipate, therefore, many aspects of psychotherapy, especially that which has a transpersonal component. Imagine, simplistically, therapy as having a number of stages. Firstly, expressing the problem. Well, Gnostics describe this powerfully as alienation, imprisonment, entrapment, being cast into this world and body, the fallen state. Secondly, realise one's own defences or false self. Gnostics point also to the numerous defences against our alienated condition and the awareness of it. Our distractions, sexuality, addictions, the noise of this world, the great slumber. Thirdly, determination 
to change one's condition and the encouragement to do so. Gnostics describe this as the call to awaken. And fourthly, the reconfiguration of personality, the awakening to the truth of one's condition and the living of life in a different manner. Well, that is Gnosis. On a more macro level, Gnosticism stresses that evil is a real force not to be underestimated, something in total agreement with the Jungian position. Secondly, that in a civilization which has been excessively masculinized, a feminine principle needs to be integrated. And thirdly, it also challenges the two foundation pillars of the West, the Judaic leading to Christianity and the Greek tradition which initiated the scientific and rational method that later led to the Western Enlightenment. Gnosticism disputed rational inquiry. It downgraded Yahweh and by implication Judaism and later the Catholic Church, though many accepted Jesus Christ incidentally. It promoted the individual path of gnosis, inner illumination, the knowledge of transcendence that was realised by way of interior intuitive knowing. The Gnostics thought mythologically, like Christians, Jews and almost everybody of that time. I say almost because the Buddha amazingly escaped this way of thinking and founded a religion without gods. However, this is another story. For the modern mind to understand the Gnostics, all the Judaic and Christian religions, translation is necessary into the contemporary psychological way of thinking. Mythologies or the cosmogenies, the origins of the cosmos, of the great religions appear to be about the creation of the world and mankind, but really should be understood as the birth, history and destiny of consciousness itself. Thus let there be light in the Judaic Christian myth translates not as a material event in the physical world, but as the birth of consciousness itself, the light, actually regarded by many to this day as a miracle without scientific explanation. Mythology is therefore a grand parable, symbol, metaphor, concerning human consciousness. This will become clearer in later podcasts. Thus, when we read in the Manichaean mythology that there was a primal division in the pre-temporal pleroma, this translates as a fundamental split in the foundations of consciousness itself, the pre-temporal situation of consciousness before the ego developed. Primal division as some fundamental split in the psyche, in consciousness itself. Another example, when Sophia undergoes a fall and great suffering, this translates as the fall and loss of the feminine in the history of human consciousness. For example, one might locate it in terms of the transition from the matriarchy to the patriarchy. Gnostic themes of deep entrapment or imprisonment, intense alienation within the human condition, continually surface as part of an underlying existential angst within the human condition. These themes also emerge in dreams. For example, six months ago I had the following dream. I arrived with a small group at a vast castle, as if we had just landed by spaceship. I walk and crawl along a strange route to the forbidden interior of the castle and look through an opening in the wall. I see the inside of a large room where the ant conquerors of the land, that is the insect, the ant, who become the conquerors, 
are operating their technological devices, computers. Within the room, a parish priest who represents the people is imploring favours or mercy and is harshly dismissed. I retire without being seen and return to the main hall where my group or space crew are gathered with a large crowd of the human population who are dressed as agricultural working people of a previous century. They want to know who we are. There is a commotion in our group, no one knowing who is the leader to speak. Eventually, I realise it is my duty to do so, and I speak spontaneously to them without knowing what I was going to utter. I say to the crowd, what you are looking for is Gnosis. They are amazed, but as if this is an ancient truth they dimly knew but had forgotten or could no longer hardly believe. I continue, and once again the words emerge with no forethought. You have been captured by the powers, the ant conquerors, and their technology, 100 years ago, and are enslaved. They are astonished, but at some level seem happy to know this. This dream occurred shortly before the podcasts on Jung began. I did not know exactly how many podcasts I would end up devoting to Gnosticism, but I knew I could not explore Jung without giving it considerable attention. I have been periodically fascinated by Gnosticism since I first came across it in my training as a Jungian analyst. Their poetry, passion and radicalism attracted me immensely. Their words, although translated into a far distant language from their own, still carried their spirit, penetrated me, and I was captivated by their phrasing. I sort of fell in love with them. Here is my interpretation of the dream, which I'm sure some of you have surmised already. My higher self, coming from a spacecraft, arrives at the castle of my imprisonment. I am shown the conquerors of the land, my psyche, with their technologies, cruelties and devilish intelligence. The parish priest represents the impotence of the Christianity I was brought up in to deal with the unconquerors. I, through my higher self, eventually have to speak to the enslaved parts of myself, who dimly know the truth but are grateful to be told so clearly. Gnosis, the knowledge of my enslaved condition, is vital. The castle is the immense defence fortress of my ego and personality. The ants are the eternally remorseless, restless, repressive force who work the devices to continue my enslavement. Therefore, I am divided between the part of me that is enslaved and my higher self, which has come down to deliver the message for my gnosis that might lead to my freedom. I am in doubt if I can step into the role required to sufficiently identify with my higher self so as to lead the way to my liberation. But in this dream, I do speak out. I must say, in other dreams, I don't. Thus, I am divided, as the Gnostics so poignantly remind us, into dark and light. The light is trapped or imprisoned in the darkness, in the prison or enslaved. The messenger from another realm, the higher self, and the word, 
capital W, is required for freedom. All of these mythological themes, fundamental to Gnosticism, and early Christianity actually, are translated into the psychological language of our times through Jungian psychology. From insight into my own condition, I can move outwards to my society, my culture, my civilization, my world, and see the same story. I also move through history and see likewise. In other words, this is an archetypal drama of entrapment of humans in their fallen state and the impulse for liberation which is within. Gnostic themes are archetypal and therefore surface in any culture. They do so into our own with striking relevance, for example in films. The Superman films have elements of Gnostic as well as Christian mythology. Someone with extraordinary powers from another world comes to battle against the forces of evil. The Superman film of 1978 with Marlon Brando and Christopher Reeve playing the roles of father and son depicts a scientist, Jor-El, sending his infant son, Kal-El, on a spaceship to Earth before their planet Krypton is destroyed. This is reminiscent of the Manichaean myth of the pre-temporal battle between good and evil and the sending of primal man to fight the powers of darkness. Also reminiscent of the Christian myth, God the Father sending the Son, Jesus Christ, from the heavens, who with divine powers confronts the forces of darkness. Victory is by no means assured for the messenger, and in many versions of the myth there is defeat. Remember, Christ died forsaken in despair on a cross. In the Superman myth, Karel is brought up by humble parents who adopt him and gradually become aware of his powers. He is the light, the messenger, come into this world from above. Does that sound familiar to Christians? He leaves for the metropolis where he fights against the forces of evil under the leadership of Lex Luthor, one presumes the law of Lucifer, and reaffirms the principle of love as the redeeming force in his relationship with Lois Lane. However, in 1999, the cult film Matrix used Gnostic motifs to great effect to present universal themes, for instance, entrapment, but also to prefigure deep concerns of the 21st century. For example, those of artificial intelligence and the transgender question. Firstly, AI is manifestly a big theme in The Matrix. The human race in the film has been defeated in a nuclear war by sentient machines, which have now enslaved it, using humans as the source of energy. The details, actually, of this feeding of dead humans as food to the newly born humans who are imprisoned and tapped as a source of energy for the AI civilization, are as revolting as some of the details of the Gnostic myths. At the same time, on another level of the Matrix, the human race continues with its daily existence as at present. But this is a simulated programme, which we take for reality. The underlying reality, inverted commas, is of a brutal enslavement. The internet also becomes another form of enslavement in the post-apocalyptic world. Neo, the emerging hero of the film, is spotted and contacted by the resistance fighters, the Gnostics by our parallel reasoning, 
and is taken to the underworld, the club, by Trinity, and then introduced to Morpheus, who explains a little to him, and then offers him the famous red pill, the truth, or blue pill, sleep, wake up, forget, and continue with simulated existence. In other words, he is offered Gnosis. Morpheus is convinced that Neo is the one, the messenger, the chosen one, the liberator, who will free the human race. Morpheus, in Greek mythology, the god of dreams, initiates Neo into the levels of simulated reality. Neo, or New, is the reborn person now aware of the Matrix. Zion is the last human city and is below the planet's surface and has survived so far after the war which resulted in artificial life forms dominating the world. Morpheus, Neo and the group fight a brutal battle against the vicious AI agents, as it were, the archons of Gnostic fame. Fearsome creatures who guard the gates of the prison, prevent liberation and maintain the simulated order. Neo, aided at first by Morpheus, then by his own emerging powers, and then by the love of Trinity, increasingly realises that he is the one to continue this battle of freedom. Freedom is the theme of Gnosticism and the Matrix. The Gnostics were acutely aware that it required a transcendent force to liberate them, but also an individual gnosis or awakening was required. Incidentally, Neo in the Matrix is continually waking up. For the Gnostics, the world was an unreal creation of the Demiurge, and the Archons were designed to delude them, while their reality was quite outside the cosmos. Gnosticism and the Matrix are quite close in this matter, though there is one essential difference that repeats the difference between Gnosticism and Existentialism. In the Matrix, the source of the One, the source of Gnosis, does not appear to be from a transcendent source. There is no God or vast intelligence out there somewhere. Whereas for the Gnostics there was, but this unknown God of the Gnostics had not created the world at all. But instead it was created by a demiurge, a lower and devilish force, who held the human race as captive. The Gnostics ask the life, or the great life, that is the unknown God, Who has cast me into the afflictions of the worlds? Who transported me into the evil darkness? And it replies, It is not according to the will of the great life that thou hast come here. That house in which thou dwellest, not life has built it. This world was not created according to the wish of the great life. The Matrix and the Gnostics present a comparable view of the alienated condition on this earth. But the Gnostics have some source in the Pleroma, from which they have ultimately derived, like the scattered light in the darkness. The transgender question is less obvious, though it is implied. It is understandable that the Matrix has some guaranteed popular effects, the attraction between Neo and Trinity, for example. But it's a small step to see the implication that if the mind, not the body, is that which engages with the levels of reality, and if these are a simulated program, then this must include gender identity as a potential simulated program. One of the characters in the Morpheus Resistance Force in the film 
was written to be played by a man, but in the film was actually played by a woman, who is called Switch. The writers and directors of the film were the Wachowski brothers of that time, and both later came out as switched gender identities. Lana Wachowski in 2010 and Lily Wachowski in 2016. Since these events, reinterpretation of the Matrix has naturally taken place. Gender identities and our sexual behaviour are being explored in the contemporary world and proving far more flexible than was imagined a short time ago. That these gender and sexual characteristics are subject to being manipulated, reprogrammed and changed is becoming part of the exploration of identity in Western cultures. It's all part of a changing identity experiment. This is intimately linked to the new technologies that make radical gender change possible. Thus, AI and transgender possibilities overlap. From this emerging viewpoint, gender stereotyping is easily seen as a form of subjugation, repression and enslavement, provoking therefore a resistance or liberation movement. On this tantalising question, that is, changing, perhaps evolving human nature, sexuality and artificial intelligence, I leave you to ponder this further and whether gnosis now means waking up to levels of entrapment and imprisonment hardly dreamt of by past generations. We shall certainly return to these themes as the podcasts progress. Mm-hmm.